been exciting to listen to you guys talk about what's going on through your small groups. Hi, Tony. How are you? You're okay. <laughs> he was back there greeting Phil. I know what he was doing. Hey, um, so I'm just hearing lots of good stories about what God is doing in the small groups, uh, just how he's opening up great conversations, uh, great connections amongst you. And one of the things that I just want to put on the front of this, this sermon is this irrefutable fact that you cannot walk faithfully with Jesus in isolation. You cannot walk faithfully with Jesus in isolation. This whole Curtains Remix study, and really the the whole way that we try to do church is built around this reality. Sunday morning is great. The gathering is great. But like John said, you have to be connected beyond Sunday morning with other people who encourage you, who challenge you, who pray with you, who listen to you, who encourage you. That is where the real discipleship work is going to happen. If we look at all the one another commands of the scriptures, very few of them can we do on a Sunday morning. But in a small group setting, in a living room setting, whether it's here at the church or an actual living room, that's where we begin to disciple one another. You cannot walk faithfully with Jesus in isolation. And here's what I want you to hear. You can be in a crowd and still be isolated, right? You can be in a small group and still be isolated. So it's not enough that you just show up. You got to bring yourself to the table. You got to be willing to let your guard down, to remove some of the curtains, that what this whole study is about, and to move into relationship with one another. All right. So this is, this is what we're after. Don't Neglect community. You need community in order, in order to walk faithfully with God. And before we jump into this week's sermon, I just want to go back and recap the last five weeks, just real quick. The main thread from each of the weeks, so you know where we've been. If you're, if you're new to Grace the first time, I'll kind of give you some context of where we're going. But week one of this study, we learned that Jesus died on the cross. When he died on the cross, he breathed his last, and the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. You remember this? The curtain represented a physical barrier between the presence of God and the people people of God. And when the curtain was torn, suddenly something changed in the cosmic realm. And now we have access to the Holy of Holies. We have access to God. We have total access to God. So Hebrews 10 tells us that we should enter the Holy of Holies with confidence because of the body of Christ. And then we looked at week two, which we looked at Philippians first chapter. And what we discovered there is that we all have a desperate need for sacred community and sacred community only happens when we come to the table with humility willing to bring our own junk and with honesty, being willing to talk about it. And so that was where we came up with this phrase, you can't walk faithfully with Jesus in isolation. And then we got to week three and we talked about the fact that we follow in the footsteps of Adam. You remember what happened with Adam when he sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did was hide. And Jesus comes and Jesus calls them out of hiding. And that was week three. Jesus is coming. We hide in all kinds of creative way. Jesus finds us. He calls us by name and calls us out of hiding. And then we looked at week four about the fact that so much, and that's when we looked at John 3, 16, that God went to incredible lengths to call us out of hiding, right? He, he made the way for us. He sacrificed his own son for this very purpose, to bring us out into the light, to bring us out of hiding. And then last week, Meg helped me. She did a great job uh, as we talked about the, the woman with the bleeding problem and Jairus' daughter. And, and really the takeaway from last week is even when it doesn't feel like it, even when you're in a season of wandering, a season of wilderness, uh, when, you're, when you're feeling like God is taking longer than you want him to take, that God is in 
the waiting, that that is where God often refines our character and helps us to have the character we need to carry the weight of the ministry that God is calling us to. So that's where we've been so far. Those are kind of just the highlights. If you weren't here for any of those weeks, you can go online and you can listen to any of them. But that brings us to this week. So grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. And what we're going to do in this passage is we're going to look at the implications, if you will, of, of Jesus' stated mission. Jesus is telling us, this is what I'm here for. This is my mission. So we're going to look at what the implications for Jesus are, but we're also going to ask the question, what does it mean for our own ministry? And before we can go any further, we got to just kind of put this out on the This is a basic premise of this particular sermon is that every person who is walking with Jesus is called to be on mission. If you have said yes to Jesus, get this, you are a priest. And every priest has a job, has a function for God. You, if you've said yes to Jesus, are a priest. You are created in Christ Jesus to do a good work, which he prepared in advance for you to do. You are a priest. He knit you together for a plan and for a purpose. So I want to stop there before you read the passage, and I just want to ask you this question. Do you believe? Not do you believe in your mind, but do you believe deep in your spirit that you are called and equipped to do something meaningful and profound for God? Do you believe that you are a priest? You can clap. That's a good thing to clap for. I think that would mean that you believe it right? You are a priest. And so we're going to look at the gospel of Luke verses 16 through 21. And in this passage, Jesus is beginning his public ministry and he's gone back to his hometown of Nazareth where he actually has what I would call a tainted reputation. It's a small town. I grew up in a very rural town in, in Michigan, a population of about 900 people. My graduating class was 40 people. Four of them were named Doug. That's pretty weird if you ask me. I don't know why I even bothered to tell you that, but 10% of my high school class was named Doug. Isn't that strange? Anyway, the thing I learned about a small town is everybody knows everybody's business, right? And it would have been that way in Nazareth, very much family-oriented, very much community-oriented. Everybody would have known everybody's business. And so when you read in the scriptures, like in verse 22, where it says, is not this Joseph's son, they are actually saying, isn't this this child that was conceived in sin? They would have known that Mary was pregnant before she was supposed to be pregnant. That all of that would have, they probably weren't buying into the virgin birth story. Big stretch, right? They were like, sure, whatever you say, Mary. I don't even know if Mary said it, but the whole point is that they had a reputation. When you read in the scripture and they say, isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't that Mary's son? They're saying it with disdain. They're saying it because there's a reputation and not necessarily a good one that goes with them. So that's what Jesus is coming back to. So we start in verse 16 in chapter four of Luke, and it says, and he, talking about Jesus, came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was the custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He has set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20 says, and he rolled up the scrolls and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for your spirit. 
I'm grateful for the priests in this room. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to your people. I pray that a word would go forth, not from Doug's mouth, but from your Holy Spirit. I pray that something, truth would land in our our hearts, that it would be a word from God, and that that truth would, would just bear fruit, that it would take deep roots and bear fruit a hundredfold. Lord, we pray what we pray every Sunday, that we would leave different than we came, that we would never be satisfied with playing church, but that we would leave different because we've stood in the presence of the living God. So would you speak to us? In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus reads a very short section of Isaiah, probably much shorter than was the custom. Church was a little longer process back then than it is now, but he reads a very uh, brief section, and then he says something to them that would have been both exciting and very mysterious to everyone listening. Now, they probably all were very aware of what he was reading, and they would have known, most likely, that this was a messianic prophecy. It was a prophecy about someday a Messiah is going to come, and this is what that Messiah is going to be like. They would have known the context of Isaiah most likely. And so Jesus says to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now they probably aren't hearing what we naturally think that they were hearing. Let me explain that to you. The listeners in the synagogue wouldn't necessarily have heard Jesus saying, I am the Messiah. We hear it that way because we have context. We know that he is the Messiah. But when he says this, he says that today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And he says, this is the year of the Lord's favor. Most likely what the listeners were thinking is, could this be true? Is this really the era of which the Messiah's going to come. They probably were thinking to themselves, wow, that crazy stuff that weird guy John the Baptist is saying, is it really true? Is Jesus confirming that what John the Baptist has been telling us, that we got to prepare a way, the, the Messiah's coming, that it's all true? Is the time really at hand? Is it really the year of the Lord's favor? Fact is, if you go and back and you read the passages and, and look closely, Jesus never says that he is the actual Messiah. But what he does say really ticks him off. So if you keep reading in that passage, and I'll let you do that at a later time, he actually says to him, it's the time of the Messiah, but because of your unbelief, you're going to miss it. You're not even going to see the Messiah. That's what makes him mad. That's why if you keep reading the story, they drag him up on a hill or they take him up on a hill and they're going to throw him off a, a cliff, but obviously they don't. He walks right through them, but, but they're not mad because he said he's the Messiah. What they're mad about is because he challenged them in their faith. He challenged them in their unbelief. That's a sermon for another Sunday, but that's the, the context of what goes on. But Jesus gets to the synagogue and he reads his personal mission statement. He reads these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recover sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor. And the million-dollar question is, who are the poor? Who is it that Jesus is referring to? Who, who is the, the, the recipient of the message that Jesus has? Is it the people who don't have enough to subsistence? They don't have the clothes that they need. They don't have a place to live. They, they are physically in poverty. Or, or is it the people who just don't know who God is and they are a spiritual poverty? Is it spiritual or is it physical? 
which is God getting after here? What is Jesus saying? Has he been sent to, to teach to the, to the spiritually bankrupt or to the materially bankrupt people? And the answer is both. The gospel is good news on all accounts. Peter actually tells us in, in 2 Peter 1.3, he says the divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. One of the translations say that God has given you everything you need for life and for godliness. God has given you everything you need for physical subsistence and for spiritual subsistence. This is a, a passage of scripture that became most alive to me when we were traveling in northern India. We have a partner there called Medical Ambassadors. I've been there, I think I've been there four times. Uh, I should know that, but anyway... Every time I go, I'm amazed at how this passage comes alive. So Medical Ambassador does ministry to uh, small villages in northern India, uh, villages of people who are usually oppressed because of their class. So a lot of them are Dalit people. They are considered less than human. They're oppressed by, by the people of power, uh, a kind of poverty that I've never seen anywhere else. Just basically, if you were to walk through a village, you would say to yourself, these people have nothing. They have nothing. It is just, it's, it's just sad to see uh, how, how rough it is. But then medical ambassador comes in and they do something that I think is very profound. They gather the leaders and they ask them this question, well, what do you have? What, what local resources do you have that you can bring to bear on the problems that exist in your community? And what they discover is they actually have something. When they combine their resources, they can actually begin to, to do things that help to raise their, their standard of living. It, it's amazing to see. And as they pull together and begin to address their physical problems, they also begin to discover that God's in it and they, they come to know God. And, and as they use what they have to better themselves with the, the kingdom of God, God gives them more. It's a spiritual principle. As you use what God gives you in a God-honoring way, God will bless you with more. It's just, it's just how it works. And so suddenly we see these villages that you would think have nothing began through local empowerment and local resources kind of move towards wholeness. We have seen entire villages where they were all once Hindu. The entire village now is Christian and it's a completely different place. It's just an amazing transformation that happens because they believe that passage that was just up there, that God has given you everything you need. Now, my mentality would be, we just need to give them what we have, just send them money, build them a well, do what we need to do. But when we do that, they don't own the problems. They don't, they don't bring their own resources to bear. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be generous. We should be generous, but there's something profound about believing for yourself and for other people that God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. That is not a, some kind of license not to get involved. It's just a beautiful picture that God is in it. So we see this in, in Northern India. And what I want you to see is, is that God is in this both for the physical and the spiritual. Jesus says in, that his mission statement is, is to proclaim good news to the poor. And then he just expands on what that means. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover sight for the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And what I want you to understand this morning is that we get ourselves in trouble whenever we compartmentalize, whether this is a physical thing or a spiritual thing. It is both. We miss out on the all-encompassing nature of the gospel when we separate these two out. And we see this in the early church where they, they addressed the spiritual needs and they addressed the physical needs and the church expanded and grew. 
If you go back and you study church history, what you'll discover is the church gets themselves in trouble whenever they emphasize one side or the other. When the gospel became just a social movement, what they call social justice, and the spiritual nature of it got lost, then it wasn't the gospel. But when you have a spiritual nature to the gospel and you neglect the oppressed and you allow people to stay in a place of being oppressed, then the gospel has no teeth. It has no meaning. It's just basic hypocritical nature. It's that picture of of Paul saying that, that he's just a clanging gong, right? It just becomes noise out there. So it's both physical and it's spiritual. It's all encompassing. Colossians actually tells us that Jesus came to reconcile all things to himself, all things, okay? And I just want you to get that because it's so important. And so so this is what we want to do. I want you to turn now to the the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at a story. And in this story, you're going to see how Jesus relates to this woman, both her physical needs and her spiritual needs. This is a story that you're going to read in detail if you're doing the curtain study, or you can go back and read it. I'm just going to hit the highlights. I'm not going to read through the whole thing for the sake of time. But in chapter four, Jesus has this radical conversation with a Samaritan woman. And it's radical for two reasons. One, the very fact that he's in Samaria is radical. He is traveling through a town that most Jews would have walked Get this, they would have walked miles out of their way to avoid going through this town because they didn't like Samaritan people. They had a racial prejudice in their spirit towards them. So so Jesus is already doing a radical thing by going into Samaria, but then he is resting, he's by himself, and along comes a woman, and Jesus engages the woman in conversation, which was a social faux pas. It was against the social norms because you were told, don't make eye contact, don't have a conversation, especially when you're alone, because you want to stay away from any temptation or any appearance of inappropriateness, right? And, and this particular woman, she probably had a, a pretty bad reputation based on what we know about the story. And so that kind of makes sense, right? And we, we kind of have the same rules of conduct in our own society. If you guys were to see me in a particular place in town, standing on a corner, having a conversation with a woman who looked like she might be doing something she shouldn't be doing, and you were watching me, you guys might make some assumptions. It could be somewhat scandalous, right? You could, you could say, well, it's probably not wise for Doug to be there and having that conversation, right? We get that. Like, we would make some assumptions about this conversation in the same way we do in our society today, right? So, regardless... Jesus violates some of the social norms, if you will, and he begins to have this dialogue with this woman. And if you look at verse nine of the passage, he says to the woman, or he says to the woman, bring some water, and she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? I think there is a strong possibility that she thought that Jesus was gonna hit on her. Now, she doesn't know who he is, Again, we have this context that we're reading the story, but first of all, he's not even supposed to be talking to her. The fact that he's talking to her is already going to give her some warning signs, if you will. I'm pretty sure lots of men have hit on her because she has a reputation, and that's just the way it goes. And so I think she, when she asks this question, she's sort of asking it with disdain, like, hey, what gives, buddy? Right? What are you after here? Right? And Jesus says to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. 
Now, where we sometimes mess up this story is we think he's talking spiritual, but she wasn't talking spiritual at all. Living water in the ancient world just meant moving water. So you think about uh, ancient world, think about Roman uh, buildings, and they would put in aqueducts, and the water would come right to their, 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 their living area, and how much more convenient would it be to have basically water running through your home as opposed to you having to run to a well and pump your water and bring it back, and everything you had to do with water from bathing to eating had to be carried to your home. So when he says, I'd give you living water, she's got to be you kind of like, well, that would be swell because I don't really like walking to the well every day. I don't like the chastisement I get when I go to the well. I don't like any of this. So she's sort of all of a sudden thinking, and as they continue the conversation, she realizes he's not talking about running water. He's talking about something incredibly different, and he begins to talk to her about her promiscuity, right, her, her lifestyle. He addresses some of the physical things that are going on in her life, and she does something that I think is amazing. She immediately puts up a curtain. She goes into hiding. It's, it's, it's amazing to see. He wants to talk about her heart, and she wants to talk about theology. Look at the exchange. It starts in verse 18. Jesus is talking. He says, well, you've had five husbands, and the one that you uh, have now is not your husband. She says, well, what you've said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. You know things that you shouldn't know. Makes me a little uncomfortable. So let's just change the subject. Our fathers... Our fathers used to say that we worship on this hill, but, but you say we have to worship over there. Where are we supposed to worship? I just want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about my husband's. I don't want to talk about my life. She does this thing that we are all guilty of doing at different times. There's an author, theologian, pastor out there. His name is Eugene Peterson. He's brilliant. But he calls this depersonalization. Depersonalization is a theology depersonalized into information about God. I would even say you could add information about God or information about God's people. It's when we read the scriptures and make application for all humanity and never make an application to ourselves. Right, and we all do this at times. I'm just being honest with you. I do this at times, you do this at times. It's, it's theology that misses personal application. Like the woman at the well, we can hide behind theological principles and theological truths and, and what does the, the body of God need? What do the people of God need to do? And forget everything about personal application. So I'm going to give you an example. And I, with a precursor to this is I do not have any particular case in point in mind. This happens actually quite often. Um, and, I, and I know sometimes it's out of a good place, but sometimes not so much. So just stay with me. Uh, sometimes when I preach, and I preach especially about sacrificial giving, uh, honoring one another in the home, uh, any of those kind of things, it's very common for people to come up to me and say, man, I wish my husband was here. Boy, I wish my wife was here. She really needs to hear that. Right? And I know I'm kind of stepping on some of your toes, and some of you are thinking, wow, I've said that to Doug. And, and maybe it's true that your spouse needed to hear it, but you got to be careful. The minute you go there, you're depersonalizing whatever I preached on. You're depersonalizing what the Word of God might want to say to you. And I don't know about you, but whenever I begin to think about what Meg needs, I'm usually in trouble. Right? I've already went to a place that God really hasn't given me permission to go to. And usually what he says to me is, let's not worry about Meg right now. Let's just talk about Doug. Right? But it's much more comfortable for me to think about Meg 
than it is to think about Doug. We depersonalize it when we shift it over. It's funny, a lot of people were giving me grief in the, in the lobby today, and they're like, that was a great sermon. He really needed to hear this. That was a great sermon. She really, like, they were all having fun with it. But it. And it is sort of fun, but I just want you to realize we do it all the time. And sometimes we do it by shifting and thinking about that friend of ours, that people group of ours. Sometimes we do it just by thinking about the church in general. But don't let the Spirit of God go over you by depersonalizing. Ask yourself, what does the Lord want to say to me? When you're doing your curtain study, answer the questions. What is God saying to you? Not what is he saying to the church at large. What is he saying to you? So back to the woman at the well. She says, enough about me. Let's talk about theology, right? And then Jesus says to her in verse 23, but the hour is coming and it's here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people. The hour is coming, right? He's quoting that Isaiah passage. That he says, the hour is coming. Now is the year of the Lord's favor. He's not talking about an actual 60-minute hour. He's not talking about a 12-month year. He's saying it's an era of time. We live in an era of time of the Lord's favor, and God is moving in our lives, and he's looking for people who will worship in spirit and in truth, who will allow the spirit of God to speak truth into their lives, who will come out of hiding, who will come out from behind the curtain and live their lives honestly before the God. She becomes one of the very first people that gets it. If you, if you read through the gospel, she's one of the very first people who, who get, really gets who Jesus is. And then something amazing happened. This woman with a terrible reputation who none of us would pick as the, the first major evangelist becomes that very thing. She becomes an evangelist. The woman with a bad reputation meets Jesus at a well and becomes an actual extension of the mission of Jesus. She becomes an extension of of the mission that Jesus read out of Isaiah. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar, went away into the town and said to the people, come and see the man who told me all that I ever did. Now, I don't know if you've ever read that and thought about how scary that is. Have you imagine meeting somebody who could tell you everything you ever did? Look, I don't want to meet that person. I'm just being honest with you. I don't want to stand in front of somebody who can read my mail and know everything I ever did because I've done some things I'm not very proud of. Right? But he told her everything she did, yet he loved her. She was in that moment fully known and fully loved. That's the amazing invitation that God has for us. And she's saying, he told me everything I did. And then she says, could this be the Christ? There's something different about this cat, man. He can see everything I did, yet he loves me. And then it says the people, they went out of the town and they were coming to Jesus. The disciples and Jesus continue to have this dialogue about what's going on about food and eating. You can read about that later. But in verse 35, Jesus says to him, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages. He's talking about her. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering the fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Most commentaries would tell you that this was not the harvest season based on the, the sequence of Jesus traveling and stuff. And so he wasn't saying, look, it's actually harvest season. I think he was looking out and he was seeing the white robes of all the people coming out of the village, coming up to where the well was to meet with Jesus. And he's saying, look, see all the people. It's white unto harvest. Look what this one woman has done by telling her story, by sharing 
her story. She becomes this evangelist and the people come out to him. So here's where I just want to stop. And this is the takeaway for today. So important. His mission is your mission. His mission is your mission. Do not depersonalize this one. I am not talking corporately. I am talking to each person in the room. His mission is your mission. This is a personal call on every person in the room. When you read Luke 4, when you read this passage out of Isaiah, you should read it in first person. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has called me and anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. The spirit of the Lord is upon you. And he has called you and anointed you to proclaim the good news to the poor, the physically poor and the spiritually poor. He has anointed you to do that. Each one of you as a follower of Jesus is a priest. And you are an extension of the very mission of Jesus. Your, amen. His mission is your mission. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. We are the body of Christ. We are the physical extension of Christ in this world right now. This is what we're called to do. You are God's created work of art, created in Christ Jesus to do a good work that he prepared for you to do. And you will never find your purpose in life until you live into Ephesians 2.10 and discover the purpose that God has prepared for you until you are the priest that God has called you to be. His mission is your mission. When we accept this and we live into this royal calling, that's when we'll be the people that God has called us to be, living with purpose. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that this truth would sink deep into our souls, that your purpose is our purpose, that your mission is our our mission, that you have anointed each one of us with your Holy Spirit, that we can enter the holy of holies, that we can walk in your spirit, and that you will make our lives fruitful as we do the very things that you've called us to do. I pray that none of us leave this room holding on to the insecurities to say, yeah, but not me. They don't know what I've done. I don't have the gifts, I don't have the talents, I can't do, no, Lord, that we would hear we are each one in our own particularized way an extension of your mission. Lord, I thank you for the power of this truth. I pray that we would live into it, that we would be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, I just want to share a real quick story as a way of wrapping things up. We often pray uh, for you before the services, uh, and we just ask the Lord, what is it you want to do in the service today? And for some of you, uh, this becomes a little bit uncomfortable when we do this, but sometimes we hear specific things, uh, like the Lord wants to bring healing to a particular uh, problem that you have. And and I know this is out of the ordinary for a lot of you, uh, but I just want to tell you what happens sometimes. So uh, last week... Uh, what we heard was a right shoulder. I'm pretty sure it was a right shoulder. Could have been a left shoulder. Uh, and we just said, look, we just think one of, somebody in the congregation is struggling with a shoulder injury and we just want to pray for you. And look, we don't claim that God will always heal, but he does sometimes. And so the person came down and said, I'm pretty sure that's me. And we prayed and her shoulder was healed. And she could do things she couldn't do. 
And she could do things she couldn't do before, and, and there's been some interactions with her through the week that, that kind of reinforces that God did something miraculous. And, and I can't tell you that that's always going to happen, but I think it happens more often than we think when we are obedient. So we prayed for you today, and what we heard is that there's some, somebody's just really struggling with some knee issues, both knees, and they just want some prayer for that. We would love to pray for you. We also heard that there's somebody that's really struggling with a broken heart. And I don't know what that means. It could be a relationship that's gone bad or it just could be that you're struggling, but we would love to pray for you. And here's the deal. Even if I didn't say what you need, we still believe that you're called to uh, come and allow the, the elders of the church to lay hands on you. So we have these people down here that are uh, just trained to be prayer warriors and they would love to lay hands on you and pray. And uh, in your obedience, let's just uh, believe that God's gonna do more than we can ask, think, or imagine according to the power of the Spirit at work within us. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Come on down if you want some prayer.